Galatians 4, 1 to 7, hear the word of the Lord. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Let's pray. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. What would you say if I asked you, what's the best aspect of being a Christian? What would you say? Help me out. What's the best thing? Eternity. Eternity? Okay. Relationship with Jesus. Mm -hmm. What else? Sins forgiven. Sins forgiven. Washed away. away. Grace. Grace. Mm -hmm. Okay. Good. Any others? Being loved by God. God. Mm -hmm. No fear of dying. No fear of dying. That's a big one. Okay. And we, this is, would be an inconclusive. Superlative questions are always hard about the best and the worst because there's so many great things, aren't there, about being a Christian. Some might say acceptance by God. Somebody mentioned forgiveness, freedom from the fear of death, the new life that we can live, the community of the church. There are all sorts of aspects to being a Christian that are absolutely wonderful. And I don't mean to present... Uh, the one today as the absolute best because it's hard to rank these things. But there is in what we're seeing from last week and today, there is a crescendo. There is a building. And what we've seen in this letter to the Galatians, we have found out that we are accepted by God through faith in Jesus Christ, not on the basis of the works of the law. Our obedience to the law. That's not how we're accepted by God. We're accepted by God on the basis of faith in Christ and what He has done. This is the doctrine that's called justification because it's when God declares us to be just or righteous in His sight, takes away all our sins, and gives us His righteousness. But He builds on that, and this could be a candidate for the highest privileges of the Christian, Uh, And that is, he builds on top of justification, he builds adoption as daughters and sons. That was introduced last week in the text we saw, and now in this text, he builds upon this. You may recall that he used some illustrations last week to talk about how the law functions and how it functioned in the life of the people of Israel, the law that God gave, and he adds a new illustration today. The illustration actually adds two more. He adds the illustration of underaged children. Underaged children. Now, he's already given us two other illustrations. One was prison warden, and the other was tutor. And now he adds to that trustee. So what does a prison warden does? It 
The law locked us up until Christ set us free. And what, uh, what does a tutor do? A tutor disciplined us and tried to keep us in line until we, uh, until Christ came and we enjoyed freedom in Christ. And now we have this idea of underage children. This is the new illustration, and that's how he begins here. He says, I mean that the heir, and by the way, if you look at the verse before that in chapter 3, verse 29, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. And so this is the continuation of talking about heirs. And he says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. So this is another illustration about how the law works. And the idea here is that the people of God in the Old Testament were his children, but they were like underage children. And so they hadn't entered into the full benefits of being God's children. And the illustration is that if, uh, if someone is an underage child, there's, in a sense, no difference between his experience and the experience of a slave. In this sense, they are both completely under the authority of the father. They are not, they have not entered into full benefits yet. The slave hasn't and never will if he continues to be a slave. And the underage child hasn't yet either. And it says, even if that underage child is legally the Lord of everything, the owner of absolutely everything in his father's patrimony, in his father's estate, he doesn't have access to it yet. Why not? Because he's underage. He doesn't have access to it. And usually, well, in our situation, uh, we come to majority of age when we turn 18. Uh, It looks like in the situation here, in those days, they didn't live as long, so they had to move things up a bit, when the child became 14, that's when the the child would come into the full benefits of of being a child of age. But the father could set a different time if he wanted to. And that's the idea here. Uh, When will the child come into full benefits and really experience life as as a child of the father? Well, when the father says so. When the father appoints the time. And that's what it says here. It says in, in verse 3, in the same way we also. Now, in Galatians, sometimes when Paul says we, he's speaking of Jews because he was a, a Jew. And sometimes when he says we, he's being more inclusive and he's speaking of Jews and Gentiles together. But it looks like here he's speaking of we Jews. Because in verse 3 he says, In the same way we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son. So it looks like he's saying that we Jews, we had these privileges, but we hadn't come into them yet. Because the Father's set time had not yet come. Uh, it's a bit shocking, and you need to hold on to this and come back next week. It's a bit shocking when he describes the, the enslaving principles. He says the elementary principles of the world. The shocking part of that is he's including the law of God in that. And we'll, we'll find out next week, I think, uh, how the law of God, which is not of the world, it's from God, but how, what that has in common with these enslaving elementary principles of the world. 
But he says, that's how we were. And did you notice he's now introduced another image? And he slid from underage children into yet another illustration, and that's of slaves. So he says, we were underage children, but as underage children, our life was, was similar to the life of slaves because we were being enslaved by these elementary principles. But that all changed. That all changed at the time set by the Father. And here's the big adversative here. Here's the big contrast in verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under law. Now, here he's using this illustration of uh, when does the child come into majority of age? When the Father says so. And he's saying, when did Christ come? Christ came when the Father said so. When the Father appointed the time. Now, there are those, and they may be right, there are those who look at history, the history of the world, and say, this was the perfect time for God to send His Son. Why? Well, the Roman road system, if you want a message to get out in all the Roman Empire, you need a road system. And uh, the universality of the Greek language also. And the dispersion of the Jews into many of the cities of the Roman Empire so that when the Gospel came in, they'd already heard about the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And so there were some, some advantageous aspects to the time in which Jesus came. But what makes it the fullness of time? Well, what makes it the fullness of time is that the Father said so. That's the the appointed time of the Father. And what did He do? In that moment, in that fullness of time, God sent forth His Son. Now, let's think about this a bit. If God sent forth His Son at that moment, did the Son already exist or not? Absolutely. And so now, now Paul is not specifically making this point, but he's presupposing here what Scripture teaches, and that is the eternal existence of the Son. So the Father sent forth the Son, both eternally existent as God. And we saw that uh, in, the, in the opening verses of Galatians where, where Paul puts God the Father and God the Son on the same level. But in the fullness of time, God sent forth the Son. And it's fascinating, the contrast here. So here we have the eternally existent Son being sent forth. And how did He come into this world? What does Paul say? Born of a woman. That, that's quite a contrast, isn't it? How did the rest of us get here? We were born of women as well, right? That's how human beings come into the world. So this, this juxtaposition of, of the Son's eternal existence and the, the pedestrian, common, biological, human entrance into the world is striking. But this points to a striking teaching of the, the Bible. And that is that Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, is eternal Son of God, and at the same time, he is, He's a real human. He got here the same way that we did. He was born of a woman. 
And so he is fully human. But he was also born as a member of what nation? Israel. Israel. So he was born a Jew. And so Paul says he was born not only in the, the ordinary way that all human beings are born, making him just like one of us in terms of his humanity, but he also, being born a Jew, was born under the law. And this is also quite astounding, isn't it? That, that the one who gave the law, uh, the, the one who is the lawgiver, is now existing under the law, subject to the law. And let's review what the law says, because there are two aspects to the law. The law says, obey. And so he was subject to obedience to his own law. He was subject to obey everything that the law said. And the law also says, if you don't obey, you die. So the law has two aspects. It commands obedience and it promises the death penalty for any infraction thereof. And so the son came into the world, born of a woman, born under the law, which means he was subject to these two aspects of the law. He was subject to obeying the law perfectly and to that that death penalty that hangs over anyone who is under the law. And uh, the reason... The reason that God sent forth His Son, that He was born of a woman, the purpose is in verse 5. And here we have, in order to, and then we have another in order to. We have two in order to's, two purpose clauses in verse 5. So, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, in order to redeem those who were under the law. To redeem those who were under the law. Now it looks like what Paul is doing is being more expansive. Who are those who were under the law? Well, obviously it's the Jews who were under the law. They had the written law of God. But now it seems that Paul is being more expansive. And in his, in his we, in his inclusiveness here, talking about those who were under the law, he's including not only Jews who had the, the written law of God, but he's including Gentiles who Paul says in other places, he says that the law of God is written on our hearts. And by the way, you see that around the world. The fact that people who have never had any any contact with the Bible and no contact with the Ten Commandments, you find that there is this idea that is written on human hearts that, that the commandments are good. Uh, you will find wherever you go that, that murder, even though it's committed, it's considered to be wrong. And stealing, even though it's committed, it's considered to be wrong. And lying, even though it's, it's committed, it's, it's considered to be wrong. And disobeying parents and dishonoring parents, wherever you go, even though that's widespread, it's still considered to be wrong. From where did that come? God wrote His law on our hearts. And so who are those who are under the law? Jews are under the law. Gentiles are under the law. In other words, all under the law. But that's good news. That's good news that we're under the law in this verse. Why? Because it says that God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem. And the word is to buy out. 
to buy out those who were under the law. So if we are under the law, then this is good news for us because Jesus came to buy out those who are under the law. Now, what will it take for those of us who are under the law to be bought out, to be redeemed from under the law? Well, do you remember the the two aspects of the law? It requires perfect obedience. That's what the law requires. Anybody fulfilled that? No? No hands raised? No? Okay. No one. And no one in all of human history could raise their hand and say, yes, I've done that, unless they're just deceived or, or lying. No one has done that. But one actually has. One human actually has. One who was born of a woman just like we were born of a woman. Jesus perfectly fulfilled and kept the law of God. So, we check that off. So that's fulfilled. A human has done it. A human has perfectly obeyed the law. And what does the law say is the penalty for disobedience? Death. Jesus, even though He didn't disobey the law took upon Himself the penalty of the law. So, there are two aspects, and they both have to be fulfilled. Perfect obedience has to be fulfilled, and death has to be fulfilled if there is any disobedience. And a human has now done that. A human, but not just any human. It's the eternal Son of God who has become a human, and He can function now as our representative before God. He can function as our stand-in before God. He can function as our Redeemer, therefore. That's how He can buy us out from being under the law. And that's what He did. By sending His Son, God did not set aside His law. When I was first a Christian, I think this is the idea that I had. That God's law, it was just too hard and too severe and so what he did was he, he set it aside and made another way for us to be saved and forgetting about the law. That's not what he did. Rather, he fulfilled the law in Jesus. Fulfilled it completely so that it's checked off, so that it's satisfied, so that the, the righteous requirements of the law are completely satisfied in Jesus. And he gives that satisfaction to us. That's how he buys us out. It is paid for. It's, it's commercial language, isn't it? To buy out. It's been paid for. It has been satisfied. It has been fulfilled. It has been written off because He fully completed it. And He said that, didn't He? The last words from the cross. What did He say? It is finished. It's done. It's paid for. It's taken care of. It's not passed over. It's not ignored. It's not set aside. It is dealt with. That's how He can buy us out. Because He paid with His own perfect life. He paid with His substitutionary death. And what is the purpose? And here's the crescendo. Here's the adding on. And here is something of a surprise. The purpose of God's redeeming us, still in verse 5. He says, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. This comes a little bit out of the blue. Because up to this point, he's, he's talked about this last week, but what he's been arguing throughout Galatians is that we are righteous before the lawgiver. 
we are justified before the judge. That's been the idea, that we're justified by faith in Jesus Christ, not the works of the law. But it's been legal language. We, we, we were the accused in the court of law. And that's where we've been standing. And now, now because of Christ's righteousness, we've been acquitted before God. And, and you might think that it can't get any better than that. But it just did. It just did because now we have, we have moved out of the, the court of law and we've moved into the family room. And that's why this could be seen as a, an even higher privilege than justification. It's one thing to be acquitted by the judge. It's another thing to be adopted by the judge into his family. And he says, that's the reason though. Do you see how this is, this is building? This is, this is, this is astounding. He says, so that you might receive adoption as sons. Now, the idea of adoption, curiously, so prominent in the New Testament and so important in the New Testament is, is almost unknown in the Old Testament. This was not a common practice among the Hebrews. And we really don't find hardly any examples. And the examples are sort of indirect. Uh, it doesn't really talk about adoption, but Abraham, before he was able to have children, says, well, there's a servant in my family or in my household that's going to receive everything. And God says, no, you're going to have biological children. So that might be an allusion to the idea of an adopting a servant to be a stand-in for a son. And then we have this idea of the, like we read in Exodus chapter 4, of God saying to Pharaoh, Israel is my son. Let my son go, and if you don't let my son go, I will take your firstborn son. So there's an idea of adoption, but it's a national adoption, isn't it? It's not intimate and personal, it's adopting the nation as his son. But here it gets intimate and individual and personal. It says, so that we, and here the we must be inclusive, we Jews, we Gentiles who believe in Jesus Christ, we might receive the adoption as sons. Now, it, this, is, this, is, um, this is astounding because what does adoption mean? What is adoption? Adoption is receiving into a family, a son or daughter, from another family of origin, and then counting that adopted son or daughter as a complete, real, fully privileged son or daughter. So, the new son or daughter, the adoptive son or daughter, has all the rights and privileges and benefits of any biological children. That's what adoption means. Now, let's think about this. What does it mean in this case? Who is the natural Son of God the Father, if we can say it that way. Jesus. Jesus. So, let's, let's get this straight. So, if we're being adopted into the family, and if our concept of adoption is correct, then that means that we are entering into the same privileges and benefits that Jesus has before God. You see why this is so astounding? That sounds almost like we're going too far, doesn't it? That sounds almost blasphemous, doesn't it? Because it is so, so exalted. But if we keep reading, that's exactly the argument that continues. 
The argument that continues goes like this. This is what Jesus has before God, and if you are a son or a daughter, you have it too. Let's look. Verses 6 and 7. He says, And because you are sons, and here, by the way, Sons include sons and daughters. It's uh, in Greek. There's no easy way to to do this. It's it's a generic masculine that covers men and women. But we could read legitimately because you are sons, because you are daughters. God has sent the spirit of His Son into our hearts. Look at how this argument goes. If you're a son or a daughter, you get the Holy Spirit. Why? What did Jesus receive as a son? As the son? Do you remember when he was baptized? What did he receive? He received the Holy Spirit. And so if, if, if the only begotten son receives the Holy Spirit, and other sons and daughters are brought into the family, what, else, what should they receive? The Holy Spirit. Do you see how the argument goes? So we're not making this up. We're not going too far to say that we are entering into the same privileges that Jesus has. And he goes further. He says, He has sent his, the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Now, Abba was what Jewish children used to refer to their earthly fathers. But there is no evidence that Jews ever used this term to refer to God. That would be going too far. That would be too intimate. That would just be too close. And so they did not use this term, but they used it with their dads. And it is almost certain that when Jesus referred to His Father in the Gospels, now our Gospels came to us in Greek, but Jesus would have been speaking Aramaic. And it's almost certain that when Jesus spoke of His Father, He used the word Abba. Now, how do we know that? Well, we know that because they wanted to kill Him for it. Because He was going too far. He was getting just too intimate with God the Father by calling Him Abba. And it is almost certain that when His disciples came to Him and said, Lord, teach us to pray as John the Baptist taught His disciples to pray. And He began to teach them and He said, when you pray, say this, Our Abba, who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. What's that mean? This title that he had the privilege of using before God, he is passing on to us. Do you see how the argument goes? If the only begotten Son gets to use this term of endearment with the Father, what do the rest of the the sons and daughters get to use with the Father? The same. The same level of intimacy. Notice that it says here, that we cry. It says He sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying. In Romans, He says something a little bit different. 
he spells this out more extensively, but he says we're the ones who are crying. Here he says the Spirit's crying, but these are not two different cries. The cry of the Spirit is heard in the cry of the believer as the believer cries out, Abba, Father. But why cry? Why doesn't say, say, or pray? Why does it say that we, we cry out? Because when do we cry? Well, sometimes we cry tears of joy. But oftentimes we cry tears of pain and sadness. And in our times of internal and external affliction, the character of the Christian, the character of the son or daughter of God is seen most clearly. Why? Because when we are suffering deeply, instead of raising an angry fist to heaven and say, why did you do this to me? The impulse of the believer is to cry out and to say, Abba. Those of us who are parents and all of us who were children, we know what it's like to fall down and to scrape our hands and our knees and to break our lips on the pavement. And what do we say in those moments? We cry out and we say, Mom, We cry out and we say, Dad. We don't curse and complain. We simply cry out. And that's where we see that we're sons. That's the testimony of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. When the pressure is applied, when the heat is on, when the suffering comes, we instinctively, intuitively turn to God. And we call Him Father. And it gets even better than that, if you can believe it. Verse 7, So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So do you see how the argument goes? If you're a son, the firstborn son got the Holy Spirit, you get the Spirit as well. If you are a son or a daughter, well, the, the only begotten son, he could call God his Abba, you can too. And the, the, the firstborn, the, the only begotten Son, is the heir of all things. And if you are a son or daughter, guess what? You get the same inheritance. And we can go to Romans and see that that's explicit. In Romans chapter 8, verse 17, and it's the same argument. And here he spells it out even more. On page 1045, and here in verse 16, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him, in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Heirs of God, and co-heirs with Christ. What do co-heirs receive? The same things. Now, that is beyond my understanding to imagine what that could possibly mean. That we are going to inherit the same things that Jesus inherits. But that's what it says. So, 
This is the teaching. Do you see that this really is a crescendo? We have built on justification, and now we see that not only justification, not only law court, but also family room. Now the question is, who are the children of God? And we already saw that last week in verse 26. It says, For in Christ Jesus you all are sons of God through faith. Through faith. Who are the sons and daughters of God? Those who have faith in Jesus Christ. Who are those who are justified before God? Those who have faith in Jesus Christ. Who are those who are the sons and daughters of God? The same way. Those who have faith. But then the next question is this. If we are believers in Jesus Christ, if we are no longer slaves, if we are no longer underage children, if we are full sons and daughters with all the rights and privileges of the children of God, the question is, how do we live? How do we live? Because slaves and sons and daughters live very differently, don't they? Slaves conceive of their relationship with God or the Master as one of fear. Whereas children relate to their fathers in a relationship of love. Slaves want to get away, whereas children want to draw near. Slaves see their relationship with the Master as one of endless obligation. Children see their relationship with their parents as one of endless privilege. How do we see our relationship with the Father? We had a couple of professors, both of them doctors and married to each other. So Dr. Roger Roger Greenway and Dr. Edna Greenway, they were professors uh, at seminary. And they had both been missionaries. They'd been missionaries in Sri Lanka and they had been missionaries in Mexico. And when they were missionaries in Mexico, they met a little girl who was an orphan. So she had no parents. She had no family. And so what they did was they adopted her into their own family and they made her their daughter. But there was a problem with this little girl. She had the spirit of an orphan. And that's a problem sometimes when children go from either no family into a new family or one family into another family. They don't have the spirit of the new family And she did not know what it meant to be a daughter. She only knew what it meant to be an orphan. She only knew what it meant to take care of herself. She knew what it meant to to protect herself and to keep anybody from getting close because she knew what could happen if somebody got close. She could get hurt. And though they had her in their home and they loved her, and they, they tried to give her things. They, they tried to teach her to, to come to them and to depend on them. She refused because she had the spirit of an orphan, not the spirit of a daughter. But one day, Dr. Roger Greenway was in his study. And he was at his desk and he was doing some work at his desk. And he noticed that This little girl was standing in the the doorway and she had something in her hand and she was 
not quite sure how to handle this, but she wanted to say something to Roger. And kind of sheepishly, she held up what was in her hand and she said, Dad? Could I have a new shoelace? And Dr. Greenway began to weep because he realized that for the first time in her life she had understood what it means to have a dad. For the first time in her life the spirit of adoption was taking over her life. She was a child, but she was living like an orphan. How about you? If you're a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ, how do you live? Like an orphan or like a child of the Heavenly Father? Let's pray. Our God, it really sounds like we've gone too far today. But we find this in Your Word. That You are not only accepting us as righteous in Your sight because of the righteousness of Christ given to us, but You are counting those who have faith in Christ as beloved sons and daughters. And You have poured out upon us some of the same blessings that Jesus has already received. The Spirit the intimacy of Abba. And you have said that we are heirs so that one day, whatever that might mean, we will inherit what Jesus inherits. Lord, such privilege is beyond our reckoning. We think it might have been enough for you simply to acquit us. And that would have been a reason for us to glorify you for all eternity. But now you have brought us even closer into your own family. And you've put your family spirit in us. And we pray, O God, as your sons and daughters, we pray to you, Abba. We pray in the name of Jesus, the firstborn, our elder brother, that you would enable us to live each moment of each day. No longer as slaves and not even as orphans but as your beloved sons and daughters. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.